Welcome to Women in the Arena podcast, the podcast celebrating women doing extraordinary things in plain sight. I'm your host, Audra Egan, and our mission is to elevate the value, strength, and resilience each woman brings to the world. Without further delay, let's go ahead and start the show. Welcome in, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me again this week. This week, I have a woman that sets a bar pretty darn high when it comes to achievement. So hold on just a minute and let me tell you a little bit about her. I am joined by Jen Ferrer, and first of all, let's get to all of her accolades. She has a master's in communication, and she is a very unique coach where she teaches leaders, specifically women, on how to lead based on neuroscience, which is really unique. Her work has been featured in some pretty impressive publications, including Forbes, Huffington Post, and American Banker Magazine. Now, if that didn't impress you all that much, the fact that she did all of this after she had a stroke at 26 should. Like I said, she's a champion and she's a champion at life. So we've got a lot to learn from her. It is my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you Jen Ferrer. Jen, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Audra, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I um I I love the show. I'm such a fan and I'm really grateful to be here. I'm grateful to know you. Um, you, uh, were a guest on our podcast at rewire, Yes, uh, Steve Scanlon interviewed you and he got off that call and he was like, you and Audra are going to be best friends. And, <laughs> and so I, I just, it was one of those things, right? We didn't plan for it. We just kind of met each other and, um, I'm just so pumped to, to be here and I, I love what you're doing. Yeah. And, and thank you for saying that. And I'm so happy that you're here and uh, being on your show was just such an interesting and and happy accident. I, you know, I hadn't heard about the work that you were, that you had been doing, but now that I have, I've been following quite a bit and realized that we're on very similar paths, just taking it in a a slightly different direction. And you have a very unique path and a very unique story. Uh, So before we jump into why we're here and what we want to talk about to everyone that is listening is, first of all, Tell us what it's like to have a stroke at 26. Oh, gosh. Um, Well, it was definitely one of those things in life that I'm extremely grateful for, uh, but I wasn't at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I So I was 26. I was on a business trip with um, my now husband. He was my boyfriend of two months at the time. He was 24. Poor guy. We thought this is probably a casual thing, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden we're in the hospital. And um, I, I was living in Virginia at the time. My hometown is Richmond, Virginia. And I, like I said, I was in New York City on a business trip. And Um, I had what I I now know the doctors call as a thunderclap headache. It's basically worst headache you can imagine worst headache of my life. Couldn't uh, right away. Vision went black. Uh, couldn't speak. Uh, I couldn't see, but I could hear everything going on around me. You know, I could hear 
Ben talking to 911. I could hear him, you know, talking to the ambulance. I knew I was in an ambulance, but I couldn't. And in fact, I, I have this one memory of him. Uh, they asked what medications I was on. He doesn't know. We just started dating. We hadn't had that conversation yet. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I remember him answering it kind of wrong and I'm wanting to jump in, but I can't. And, you know, it, it, pretty soon we realized that I, my legs from the knees down uh, were numb. So, and I had, I've always been a runner my whole adult life. So that was just really, really tough, you know, but the, this part of my story, like it, it has an extremely happy ending. I mean, I, I, it was a long recovery and I, I did a lot of rehab and I was out of work for quite a while. Um, six months I was out of work recovering, but now I, you know, I've gone on to run the New York city marathon. I have a beautiful son who's six years old. Um, uh, like I said, married the the boyfriend. Um, and I am and, and perfectly healthy and, and had a full recovery. Uh, so I'm, I'm extremely grateful. And it changed the trajectory of, of my career, really. You know, I, I, of course, identify with, you know, when somebody introduces you, it's always, you know, it's, it's like all the roles that I have, which, which I, you know, identify with, right? I'm a wife and I'm a mom and I'm an executive and I'm a coach and I'm a speaker. And uh, I just said, you, you know, I'm a runner as well. But I, I hear people introduce me sometimes and I think like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to have fun out there. Like I'm just trying to, just trying to be out here, you know, chilling out and, and having fun. And um, of course the, the stroke was a huge pivotal moment in my life, my own journey. And, and then in the course of my career as well. Well, first of all, kudos to your boyfriend, now husband, because <laughs> He probably figured, well, it can't get any worse from the from this point, so it's all up from here. Because if she's having <laughs> right. a stroke, she has a stroke when when I'm dating her. Everything else should be easy. So, you know, smart move on his point on his part <laughs> for saying, "Yep, this is the one." Yeah, uh, yeah. And then also, good on you for taking that moment and taking that time to really figuring out. Oh, this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. for me to discover who I really am and what I'm mm -hmm. supposed to do here. Because it sounds like the corporate job that you had before was probably a lot like a lot of us have found throughout the years is that we, it's something that we think we're supposed to do, but not really in line with what we really want to do. So mm -hmm. can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. And <clears throat> I think you're exactly right. I mean, most, I think most of my adult life and I'll be 42 next week. Um, so the last 16 years has been kind of deconditioning that, um, need to achieve, uh, and climbing the ladder and working myself to almost death, literally, and really learning how to, um, define my value in terms of being uh, and who I am in the world versus what I can do in the world. Um, and, and I'm lucky enough too that through my own work, right? A lot of coaching, a lot of therapy, a lot of introspection, and uh, I have a very important uh, mindfulness practice in my life. I, uh, I, I've learned sort of these tools that have helped me help others on their journey. 
as well. So other folks who are sort of identifying with, you know, wanting to recover from that ladder climbing, workaholic, uh, drive, drive, drive um, type of lifestyle and learn to chill out and have more fun in their lives, just being able to kind of accompany them on their journey as well. Well, you talked about, uh, uh, mentioned a little bit earlier about wearing labels, and we all wear these multitude of labels of of who we are or who we identify to be. Mm-hmm. And it can be very confining, at least in my own personal experience. These, these various labels that I wear feel sometimes restricting. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's more complicated for women than men. And what I see, what happened in my own life and continues to, by the way, this is not stuff that changes right in one, you know, one experience, what I see happen with, with my women friends and my clients, um, all the clients that we have at rewire, you know, there's this thing that I see happen with women where I think for guys, the scorecard is clearer, you know, and I I hope by like my son's generation that we're sort of growing out of it. And we, and we saw some of this change in, in our generation as well, where I think for men, expectation is like provider protector. It's very clear. And for women, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think we, it starts with like, what does it mean to be a good little girl? Um, and then we take on like a good friend, a, uh, a good wife, a good mom, a good, uh, executive, a good leader, a good, this, oh, and by the way, like you should be pretty and skinny also. Right. And, and so, um, what ends up happening is we, we take on all these expectations from society about all these roles that we take on throughout our lives. And for most of us, we, ha- we do have that moment where we're like, wait a minute, what did I even like to do when I was 19? Like, who am I? What do I even want out of life? Because the scorecard that society would build for us is untenable. We only have 168 hours in a week. And if you add up all the things you have to do to meet all the expectations of these roles, it's a lot more than that. Um, and so there's, there's this exciting opportunity, I think, for women to define for ourselves what success and fulfillment look like for us in life and create our own scorecard. And I think that that is a really unique opportunity that we are being afforded now. And I wouldn't say that society in and of itself is affording it to us. I think we've all just started collectively decided together that, hey, (laughs) I think we want something a little bit different. And I think I wanted something a little bit different that society wants for me, or Mm -hmm. I want something different than you want. And that's totally okay. They don't have to look the same. I, I think that we're starting to redefine what we look like and what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And we're no longer caring what society is dictating to us on what we should or shouldn't be doing and what is good and what isn't good. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, and when you said good, that really triggers me 
because yeah. we're we're always supposed to be good, good at everything. How come it is that guys get the label bad boy and it's okay? <laughs> I mean, it's suddenly that's attractive. Mm-hmm. But if you're mm-hmm. a quote unquote bad girl, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So that sort of feels uncomfortable for me. What do, what do you think? Well, look, there are um, there are a lot of things that um, guys get away with. <laughs> that, totally, that women don't. I think the most to me, like the most significant thing you just said there was I was really like it, I think is the new feminism, which is you know I think I think growing up I was always sort of given the message like I could do anything the boys could right yeah and I was given um, that message too yeah and 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 you know even even a lot of my career and all the research I've done around like okay how do we get more women into the c-suite well that I used to write and speak a lot about that in 2015 16 17 and I'm even reevaluating that piece that because I think this new wave of feminism is exactly what you're talking about, which is like, yeah, we could have all the same jobs as the guys, but some of these jobs suck. <laughs> yes, they do. You know, and and the way that they have historically been done also sucks. And maybe, maybe what ambition means for me or what success means for me is like not being stressed like not being exhausted. Maybe what ambition means for me is I uh, play guitar in my backyard around the campfire. That's, that's what I want to do. Right. And, and so that's, what's really exciting to me with the direction of, of women in the workplace. And I relate to the idea of being an ambitious woman, right. That phrase, but it means something different to me now. You know, I, I will say over the last two years, as I explained on on your show with Steve, is that it's given me perspective that I'd never had before because yeah. my world came to a halt just like everybody else's. And my ambition started to change a little bit too, to a point where I was like, this I don't recognize this new feeling, mm. which is this desire to rest, this desire to create, which I had no idea that I had in me. And mm-hmm. it feels it feels more comfortable when I sit back and evaluate it. It feels way more comfortable than all the other stuff, all the crazy ambitious stuff and chasing the brass ring and all that stuff has felt mm-hmm. in the in the last, you know, 25 plus years. Yeah. Well, and good for you for taking advantage of of that time. Because I think what happens is when we get into go mode and we can get very addicted to the achievement and we can get very addicted to stress. When we're in that that mode, we actually can't be reflective and creative uh, about what we really want. You know, when when our when we're in that stress cycle and our cortisol remains elevated, uh, we actually sort of 
can't slow down, right? And, and and can't slow down in any substantive way that where we can say, well, gosh, like what actually is my body telling me? What is my intuition telling me? Like, what are these other parts of myself in addition to this hustle, you know, this go mode that I have within me? And so I, I think a lot of you know, it's interesting. I, I saw kind of two things happen during the pandemic. I think overwhelmingly people got into go mode even more, actually. Um, so the opposite of the experience or the um, opportunity that you took, which is without, for one example is the commute. Without a commute, people never had any downtime. They went straight from like bed to parenting to work to parenting back to work, you know, to bed. And, and there was never, they never had rest periods. So I actually saw that kind of be the overwhelming trend. People became kind of more stressed and more rushed, even though it seemed like everything around us was saying, slow down, stop, slow down, you know? And then, and then I did see folks like you who ended up like thriving on the other side because they took the opportunity to reflect and to slow down and and really let their brains get into that more creative, collaborative, proactive kind of mode that we all have. It's it's way more comfortable. It's also a little bit more foreign because that's not something that I had afforded myself in any length of time before. And I think I shared with you when uh, you and I first got to know each other is that I am constantly in a in a space of creating. I have mm-hmm. to be creating something all the time, or else I feel like something's off, and uh, and it makes me very unhappy actually. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I've I've given myself permission to become who I'm supposed to be, mm. rather than what society has dictated to me. And I, and with that that thought, I want to tap into your passion, which is neuroscience, because I know mm-hmm. that what I experienced is directly in line with a lot of your of your research and and that it's it, when I told you this, you're like this makes perfect sense because <laughs> it's science and I'm like, "Really?" It made no sense to me, but this is cool. So tell tell me and tell us a little bit about the neuroscience behind all this and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah. Well, so first of all, what you have done in your journey is no easy feat. So I wanna um, I wanna give you kudos for that because it requires a level of self-mastery. And we talk a lot about self-mastery in coaching. And from a neuroscience perspective, when I talk about self-mastery, I mean, you have a human brain. <laughs> I have a human brain. There are ways in which the human brain work for us that are amazing and great and allow us to create just extraordinary things in life. And there are ways that the human brain works for us that are unhelpful to becoming who we are really meant to be, who we want to be and operating in the world in a way that is really our our highest self. And one of those ways is just the, the kind of simple fact that our brain has 
like two modes. For all of its complexity, it's actually pretty simple. So the brain has one of is always operating in one of two modes. The brain is either defending against threat, and that's a very reactive kind of automatic instinctual mode, or the brain is um, seeking reward. And we, t- we talk about that in neuroscience as being a toward state. We are moving towards something. And that is associated with thinking that is a lot uh, more proactive, more creative, slower, and more deliberate. So the brain's number one job is to keep us alive. Like for you, it's not actually creating or structuring alone, you know, and for me, it's not actually you know, having these creative and collaborative fun conversations with people, the brain's job, number one job is to keep us alive. And because of that, the brain spends about four times the amount of time defending against threat and reacting than it does being proactive. In fact, the latest research says that like over 90% of human action is actually reaction. And so that is that's why life can sometimes feel like this game of whack-a-mole where we're just kind of like reacting to the next thing, the next email, the next phone call, the next this, that. The problem though, is like when we are defending and reacting, it doesn't, doesn't feel very good. It's not good for creativity. It's not good for relationships. A side note about, about the brain is that the brain actually doesn't know the difference between an actual physical threat on your life and a social threat. Belonging and social acceptance is so hardwired into us for survival that the same areas of our brain, the distress center in the brain lights up if we feel like we're being excluded as as what lights up in our brain when we are actually in physical pain. So that's, if you've ever gotten an email and it felt like, oh my gosh, this person is out to get me. That that was your brain working exactly perfectly. <laughs> that's how it works. And so all of that to say, the brain has these two modes, kind of reactive and proactive, and they're associated with different kinds of thinking. And in order to switch modes, which we can do, We can do that pretty quickly, actually. Something comes in, it stresses us out, it has the potential of knocking us off of our game the rest of the day or week or month, or we can learn how to switch back into proactive, reflective, a more deliberate kind of way of being. And so when you talk about, I I discovered this new way of being. And the coach in me really wants to ask you about this, but uh, you needed to learn how to do that and how to no let yourself barred. do ask, that. Ask, ask away. No holds barred. Ask me whatever you want. Well, so, I mean, how did you become aware, two-part question, become aware of this other way of being, this creative way of being. And how did you make it a habit? Okay. So I'll take the first part. And that's why I say that that's easy, but it wasn't easy. I did not handle the pandemic initially, the lockdown. I did not handle it well 
at all, at all, because my entire world came to a screeching halt and I was used to running at 100 miles an hour and then I stop. That's not fun. That's very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And my husband said, if you don't talk to somebody and if you don't get help, since you are the core of this family, if you go off the cliff, we go off with you. And that scared me enough that not that I would go off the cliff, but that my family would go with me. I was like, oh, well, I guess I got to do something. So I put myself in therapy. I put myself in virtual therapy. And because I never actually physically saw my therapist in in person, but I put myself in therapy to figure this out on what in the world was going on. And that was able to clear out a lot of the mush and the just the noise and the just the brain matter that just didn't really have any sort of significance to it. That's what helped discover that Mm. is calming down the noise and understanding, is it a real threat or is it not? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's many, many times, even now I have this practice that if I start to feel anxiety, I'll say, is it real or do I just think it's real? So that I so I started this habit of figuring that out. Mm. And then second part of your question is how do I keep myself accountable to create? A couple of different ways. I'm learning several different things all at the same time. I'm learning how to be a better podcaster because this is what I love to do. I'm also learning how to make physical things, you know, create physical things. Yeah, uh, if I'm sitting and watching a movie with my husband, I probably have a crochet project in my hands to mm-hmm. slow down my brain because mm-hmm. you can't, at least I can't, I can't crochet, watch TV and think about something else all at the same time. I can't do it. Having that in my hands helps keep me present in that room. So, and, and engaging with my husband in the movie, because of course he likes to point and make comments about a movie because not all husbands <laughs> do that. I mean, I don't know. Uh, and well, then when I need time by myself, I'm learning how to sew and that helps me physically decompress and helps me be present with myself. So mm. that's, that's how I keep myself accountable. Gosh. I love so much about what you said. I mean, first of all, good for your husband for bringing that to you. You know, sometimes those things are hard to say and hard to bring up. So good, good for him for doing that. So much of what you talked about, gosh, I can relate to in my own life and just in being sort of flipped and in the coach's seat, you know, so much has to happen to, in order to have an insight. We talk a lot in coaching about, about insights, you know, that moment where you're in a conversation with somebody and uh, you're like, well, now that I'm talking about it, I see it differently. <laughs> you know, we're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, huh. I realize I just, you know, I, I just said something and then the second later I contradicted myself. Like, what's that about? And you can kind of get curious about it. But in order to have those moments of insight, you use a phrase, slow down. It is very much about you have to, to kind of slow down and good coaches and good therapists, like we're trained and 
we have learned how to create an environment where where people sort of slow down, right? Create that psychological safety, create that towards state that I mentioned a few minutes ago to create conditions for them to do their best thinking. And then also seeing the the different ways that we are thinking about the same thing, right? Like sometimes we, I think it's true of all of us that we sort of have competing beliefs about, about the same thing. Like, well, on one hand, I believe that I need to work myself to death. I need to like be utilizing every moment on my day job, right? Or I just need to hustle, 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 right? But on the other hand, I also believe that if I take some time to nurture my creative side, if I take some time for me, my like athletic side, if I take some time for me, I know I'll be better at my job. I'll be better as a wife. I'll be better as a mom. I'll be better as a citizen of the world. And so we sometimes have to, I think in, in what therapy and coaching can do is help us unearth all of those different ways we think about a situation or think about something like ambition or creativity. And then we get to pick, we get to pick the mental habits that actually reinforce who we want to be in the world and who we want to become. And that choice is like ultimate empowerment. You talked about ambition changing for women. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how does that relate to the work you do with neuroscience of leaders? Mm -hmm. So how is that translating if, if these women are, are choosing their own adventure now rather than choosing what society has said and you are teaching them the neuroscience of being a leader, I'm wondering how that's been evolving and what have been the results? Mm, okay. I know a big, fat, juicy question. And, but I'm super curious as to what that looks like together. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> gosh, there's so many, so many ways I can go with that. I want to say first that specifically around women, the common narrative around women and ambition and leadership is incomplete. Uh, The common narrative that made it from the peer-reviewed journals into the press Mm -hmm. and into popular culture is incomplete. What I mean by that, and and by the way, I'm, I'm, there's sort of the collective cultural mindset around women in leadership and their systemic bias and, and, we need to change a lot about our society in order to support women and give us more opportunities um, and more advocacy, especially women of color. And and there's also this individual piece, which is really where, you know, coaching plays in. So I'm going to speak a little bit more towards the individual mindset piece. The common narrative around women in leadership or, or ambitious women and making women making it to the top goes something like this. Women hold ourselves back because we don't lean in, we don't speak up, we don't step into the arena. And that is is very incomplete. 
the part of it that is true and that, gosh, is borne out in research. There's a, there's a few parts of it that are true. And then I'll tell you some pieces that I think are, are less well-known that the research shows. So women, and this will probably be no surprise to you. Um, it wasn't to me. We're really hard on ourselves. Did you know that? Did you know women are hard on ourselves? <laughs> I had no idea. This None. Completely new information. I know. Shocker. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so um, there was a decades long research program, uh, two pioneers in, uh, of this field, uh, Bob Kaplan and Rob Kaiser. I worked with them for five years of this program. We looked at 360 surveys. So that's like, um, for anyone listening that doesn't know, that's when you, a 360 survey is when you rate yourself on certain competencies and then you're co-workers 360 degrees around you. So your boss, your direct reports, and your peers also rate you on those same competencies. And what, after analyzing tens of thousands of 360s, we found out is that women are twice as hard on ourselves as our colleagues are, and twice as hard on ourselves as our male counterparts are. Now, when I say twice as hard, that kind of doesn't sound that much, but for sake of simple math, if you think about rating yourself on a 10 point scale, Jen does effective follow up. Let's say that's an item I rate myself on and my colleagues rate me. My colleagues might, if they see that as an opportunity for me to grow or something I need to get better at, they might go, like, yeah, I think Jen could be a little bit better at that. She's probably an eight. And I'm going to look at that same thing and go, oh, I suck at that. <laughs> and I'm a four. I'm a four, you know? And so, and, and by the way, our male colleagues are also looking at themselves going like, yeah, I could be a little better. I think I'm an eight. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, they are. <laughs> and, and that manifests in a lot of different ways. So that, that kind of being hard on ourselves, that lack of confidence, it comes out in a couple of ways. One is the popular narrative. Like, yes, it does mean for some of us that we hold ourselves back in some way. We don't speak up. Uh, we don't lean in. For others of us, it, it can come out as this need to prove ourselves, which is actually can manifest as the opposite of holding ourselves back. Like what that looks like is sort of over-talking, uh, over-explaining, working too much, busyness, taking on too much. And that is related to, um, you know, you asked with the neuroscience, that's related to this wiring that women have to be really responsible. So what happens when we're sort of hardwired to be responsible, and then we've taken on this kind of mindset that we need to prove ourselves, what happens is that sense of responsibility tips over into this exaggerated sense of responsibility where we start being the one to do all the things. And we sort of get ourselves branded as, oh man, she can get a lot of stuff done. She can get a lot of stuff done. The problem with that, with being the person doing all the things, is that in order to advance in our life and in our careers, whatever that means to us, we also need to think. <laughs> we can't just be doing. You know, we talked about this earlier. We need to be reflecting. We need to be in a creative space. We need to be planning. And what can happen to women, I think, especially in corporate America, is 
we sort of get seen as a really good right-hand man, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. because we get a lot of stuff done. But then we're up for the next opportunity. And it's like, oh, she's not strategic enough. Well, that may not exactly be true. But we, I think a lot of us haven't, I loved your phrase earlier, haven't given ourselves permission to step out of the doing and the checking off the list long enough to be creative and do some of the strategic thinking. And so that is a really big piece, I think, of the narrative that that we're missing. How do we change that? And that's something, I guess, as you, as you uh, have been explaining it and I've been thinking about it as you've been explaining it, that's some internal work that needs to be done, obviously. But I also think there's an opportunity for some external work, too, meaning that we as women and to teach our male counterparts that I'm good at all these this other stuff and I don't want to be I don't want to be your mom. I don't want to be your work wife. I don't want to do any of that stuff anymore because none of that ever felt great. Mm-hmm. I want to be I want to be my fully realized self. So I am saying this out loud because I'm thinking that yes, the internal work is important. But the external part, I think, is just as important. What do you think of Mm -hmm. that thought I have rolling around in my head? Yeah, I mean, they inform each other very much. There is a piece of the internal where we have to learn to say no to busyness and, and not take on more responsibility than is within our scope of responsibility. That is the internal work. The system that we're in, which is the external piece, is really important as well. I say this tongue in cheek, but I really mean it. Look at your male colleagues. <laughs> say yeah. say no. Say no to the busyness that they say no to. You know, um, if they're not doing it, you know, if you're if you're if your male counterparts are are not doing it, then. It, not to say they're making the right decision, but there might be some good information in there for you. You know, look at that. I do when I do sort of company wide talks. I do I, I share this information about women and how we're so hard on ourselves because I think it's just really, it's really important that we understand that that is something. Look, this is a decades long research program. This is this is stuff I can show you quantitatively to be true, and I. Th- and I think that's really important for everyone to know. It's not just on us to, for lack of a better term, fix that about ourselves. It's really important that we understand that that's part of the organizational dynamic for companies. Like one, you know, one thing that can be really helpful is to have a culture of 360 feedback. Because what happens is when, let's say I think I'm doing a lot worse at my job than I really am. And then I get feedback from 10 colleagues. What ends up happening is I'm like, oh, they think I'm good at that. I didn't think I was good at that. Huh, maybe I am. Or like, man, I've been beating myself up over this one thing. And like one person sort of alluded to it out of the 10, but everyone else didn't even think about it. Right. And so having a culture of 
of constructive feedback. Constructive feedback could be a whole other episode, you know, um, <laughs> but having, having a culture of constructive feedback, understanding that women are hard on ourselves and also that we need to be given strategic opportunities, right? To be taken out of the busyness or the role of taking notes at the meeting, whatever, you know, however that manifests and be given the strategic and be in the strategic conversations, the external and the internal in that way work together. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned being the note taker in meetings because I've been in many rooms where whoever's leading the meeting will always defer to a female. Will you take notes? Say no. <laughs> Say no, I need to be doing other things. And the yeah. other thing, when you when, when you do get the opportunity to be in a room, like a physical room with other people, and there's coffee cups or what have you, stop picking up after other people. <laughs> I, I stopped doing that because it, it's such a, it's just such an automatic thing. And it's, it's not, is it my fault? Probably. But it's also what I've been trained to do. I'm a mom. Yeah, I'm a wife. It, I'm constantly picking up after stuff. I mean, even... Our virtual assistants these days, like Alexa and Siri, like they're all female voices. It drives bonkers. Yes, because <laughs> I think they about are. my six-year-old, six and I'm like, he's even hearing that our our assistants in our house, our virtual assistants, have female voices. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a tidbit to that on my Apple phone because if I say the name right now, it'll start going off. I change the voice. <laughs> To a British dude, yeah, and the the voice on the Amazon devices I've changed to Samuel L. Jackson. So nice. you can fix this, and I decided nice. to I decided to fix this, and that's okay. the weird way that I did it. So retraining, I'm retraining myself and everybody else in the household that hey, you know, everybody can pitch in. This is not just I a love me that. thing. Yeah, with everybody. We are running out of time. Just like when I was on Steve's show, he was like, oh my gosh, I looked up at the time and it is just whizzing by. So I, I want to ask you a question about, mm. so you changed your whole life because you had a life-threatening event. What did you give up to become who you are now? Hmm. <laughs> the biggest thing I love that question I'm going to use it <clears throat> in coaching <laughs> um, the biggest thing I and I'll say I'm I think I'm still working on giving it up is the pressure I put on myself to have it all figured out. You know, you and I, we talked about this a little bit the first time we met. I think that we put so much pressure on ourselves to have it all figured out. And look, if my stroke like taught me anything and the pandemic, I mean, the last three years, if we learned anything, we don't know anything. We don't know anything. Nothing. Not a, not a clue. And we are definitely not in charge at all. And, and, and yet, and yet 
we just want, we just spend so much time just stewing over what we're going to do. And if I do X, then Y and then Z and going through all these scenarios and, and planning and, and the, and the truth is, I think that if, if we were, if we're all honest with ourselves and we look back on our lives, and this is definitely true of my life. Like when I look back at the best things that happened to me, they just happened, right? Mm-hmm. I, they didn't happen as a result of me staying up all night thinking about it or worrying about it. Um, they happened. And so I've really tried to, I really try to remind myself, I don't have to have it all figured out. It's going to work out. It's going to be fine. Whether I think about it, like blood, sweat, and tears, grind it out, you know, no matter what I do, everything is going to be okay. Um, And so that's been, that has been something I've had to, I've had to give that up. And 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 when I say say give it up, I I truly mean that because I was I was one of these, um, you know, I was just one of these kids that was really rewarded for for being smart and achieving and and for my brain. And so me being a person who figures things out was really core to my identity. Making that shift has been a has been a big one for me. But I I'll tell you what, I like it a lot better on this side. Me too, because I call that a recovering type A personality. So I'm I'm in recovery, which means that I have to learn it every single day. <laughs> yes. It, yeah. It's, it's not something I learn and it's one and done. It's something that I, it's a, I mean, let's face it. It's a lifelong habit. I'm not going to fix it in two years. That's right. I, I, have, I have to always be present in the moment and go, oh, I'm doing it again. Yeah. We say that all the time, actually. Like, you know, I'm like, well, in coaching, we can't give you a personality transplant. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't want one anyway, but all these things that, that, uh, these mental habits and these kind of ways of, of feeling these patterns are decades in the making, right? I mean, they're decades in the making. And so rewiring and changing our mental habits, it is done uh, a little bit at a time by just doing the next thing on the next day. And you do that enough days of your life and, you know, six months, a year down the road, you look back and you're like, I'm an entirely different person. Yeah. It's, it's those little incremental steps that lead to the big changes. You just don't realize Mm -hmm. you're doing it because you're Mm -hmm. in the middle of it and you're taking one little step at a time. Exactly. So you gave me a perfect segue as to saying, if, any of what we've been speaking about today resonates with the audience and they want more information about how to rewire their brain, maybe choose their own adventure, choose their own ambition, and and maybe help themselves not be in that constant fight or flight mode with their brain. How would they get in contact with you to, to talk to you and ask you these questions and maybe even coach with you? Thanks for that. I, um, the best way is probably email. It's Jen, J-E-N-N, at rewireinc.com. 
I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, Jen Ferrer, and uh, also on Instagram. And that's just Jen Ferrer, first and last name is my is my name on Instagram. Excellent. So everybody who has any curiosity, please, I encourage you to please reach out to her because she has fascinating science, more science than we could possibly talk about in an hour. And she has so much knowledge and so much opportunity for us all to grow from that is definitely worth the connection for sure. So Jen, I'm going to give you some space uh, before we let everybody go. So I want to give you an opportunity to leave a final lasting thought with everybody that's listening to us. Thanks, Audra. You know, one thing I was thinking about when you asked, you know, what I gave up and I said the need to have everything figured out. I think that I would have people really focus on cultivating trust in their lives. By that, I mean, like trust in yourself, trust in others, investing time in being trustworthy for the people in your life. Also trust that everything does work out. Everything will be better than before. You know, whether that for you is, you know, trust in God, trust in the universe, trust in mother nature, just cultivating your beliefs around sort of the natural order of things and just knowing whatever it is for you that helps you connect with that sense of everything is going to be fine. It's going to be better than fine. If I could leave leave folks with one thing, it's that just cultivate trust in your life everywhere you can. That advice is worth its weight in gold. Thank you for leaving us with that. And thank you for spending some time with me today and having this amazing conversation. Yes, this is really fun. Thank you. We will do this again. As I made Steve promise to bring me back, I'm going to make you promise to come back. And we'll think of something cool and different to talk about. I love to. This was really fun. Thanks so much, Audra. Thank you again. And thank you to all of you for listening. And we'll see you again next time. This is just the beginning. That's our show. I am so grateful for each and every one of you and your unwavering support and your continued belief in this movement that has become much bigger than me, much bigger than just a podcast. It has become this forward momentum that we are all doing together. If you are ready or you know somebody that is, that is ready to tell your story and share your value with the world, please connect with me. You can reach me at audra at womeninthearena.net. I am so honored and thankful that you will share your story with me and I'll make sure that it is well taken care of. I will never stop thanking each and every one of you. And I cannot wait to talk to you again next week as we share another woman's story and we celebrate her doing extraordinary things in plain sight. We'll see you next time. 